This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 23. This is Writing Excuses. Our advice on giving advice. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're full of it. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Aaron. I'm Dan. I'm pretty full of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Howard. Hi, everybody. Uh, so I wanted to spend a little moment uh, at the end of this deep dive talking about what are we actually doing here, right? So this is the thing that I think about a lot. And when I started my newsletter in 2019, one of the first posts I wrote was that this newsletter isn't about advice. I don't want to be someone in the world who is out there telling you this is how you do it, right? What I want to be doing instead is saying, I have experience. I've gone through certain things. Here's my perspective, right? So I think one thing that we're really good at on the show, or I hope we're good at on the show, is rooting what we talk about here in our own experiences, because that's the only lens we have. You know, last episode, Mary Robinette was talking about this metaphor of the forest, and you have your path through the forest. And it's useful to talk about that, So people can take their learnings from it. All of that said, it's hard not to slip into it. It's hard not to at some point be like, all right, all right, here's how you do it, right? Here's like this writing trick, this tip, this career advice, whatever it is. So how do we balance that? You know, I I guess I'm just curious sort of from the group what's everyone's thoughts on. In the very first season of Writing Excuses, and this isn't something that was recorded, it was something that uh, Brandon and Dan and I uh, talked about around the table, uh, and the principle was stop weasel wording. People know that the advice we're giving is just stuff that's worked for us, and we're all going to have, we don't need mm-hmm. to front load everything with, this might not work for you, but it's worked for me, and I've seen it work for a lot of other people, and here's this thing. And the point was, uh, we want to keep the podcast to 15 minutes. So just prune all that and get straight to the thing that's worked for you. And people are smart enough to throw their own filter down. Uh, fact of the matter is there are people who aren't yet aware that they need to throw that filter mm-hmm. in front of the things that we say. Um, and and so we weasel word a lot, uh, but we continue to give advice. Yeah, I find uh, when I teach classes, Story structure in particular, I have to say, this is just my experience and something that works for me. It's a tool you can use if it is helpful. Because if I don't, that is the first question every time is, do I really have to do it this way? No, no, you don't. Yeah, for me, when I've had sort of a social media response to something I put on a newsletter, kind of go in a direction that I I didn't want it to go in has been people have been like, oh, this person said, this is how we have to do it. This is how you have to market your books. And, you know, it's really hard to find that line sometimes between acknowledging my own subjectivity, my own flaws, and also not falling into imposter syndrome, right? Like, I do know stuff, right? I've been doing this for a minute. You know, I've had a number of my projects, you know, sell copies, win awards, whatever it is. And knowing that I do have experience and learnings to share but not also talking myself down and also not artificially hyping myself up. It's a tough balancing act, you know? Yeah, the uh, kind of the mantra that I use as I teach is tools, not rules. Yes. Love uh, that. that these are, 
you know, this is something you can use if you want. This is something you can ignore if you want. But please don't be, don't feel obligated to do things the way I did it because the odds are good. The way I did it is not going to work for anyone else. You know, everyone here teaches, but Aaron, I think you're the one who is most in the trenches teaching, you know, students all day, every day. You know, what's that experience like for you in terms of sharing those learnings? I think it's a lot of what folks have said is telling people my job as a teacher, I believe, is to help you tell the best story you can, not help you tell the story I wish you were telling. Mm. And I explicitly tell my class that. I also do a lot, if we ever do a podcast just on teaching, in letting students guide the learning um, and say, what is it that you want? So for example, when I workshop stories, I ask students to say, what are the questions you want us to talk about in our workshop? Not just tell you, we like this, we like that, but do you want us to talk about the characters? Do you want us to talk about the plot? What's hard Mm -hmm. with something like a podcast is like, there's only so much guiding (laughs) that can go on because, you know, it is one way. But I think that's why we love to sort of, we have a message board where people can write things, where we're trying to, with our newsletter, with our website, encourage more conversation because we want to know what is working. What is the thing that you would love for us to hear more about Mm -hmm. or to talk more about? And I also think has having a lot of different voices here helps because we don't always agree on everything or we'll put things differently. And I think that shows that there's room for many ways to tackle a particular issue. Yeah, I, I love what you're, what you're talking about. I do the same thing. I ask them, like, what are you trying to accomplish? And the, the thing that I also know is that what a student wants is a clear answer. Like, because I know that this is the thing I want. I want someone to just tell me how to do it so that I, I, I don't keep messing up. Like I, I, again, puppet metaphor, my mentor, my internship project, I, I was building these puppets for my project and they were made out of Sculpey and their fingers just kept snapping off. Like it became very much a gaffer's tape as a design element to hold the puppets together. And I was complaining about it. And he's like, yeah, you know, you should have put wire in the fingers. And I'm like, you, you watched me build them. Why didn't you tell me? And he said, well, I thought you would have learned more just making the mistake yourself. Now you know for certain. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no, I, I would have learned from you watching me do one and saying, hey, FYI, you should put wire in the fingers instead of watching me make all of the puppets with the same mistake. Like, so when I'm, when I'm giving advice, I'm like, Here, here's, here's mistakes you don't need to make. Mm-hmm. You, you can make a lot of mistakes. Here's a tool that you should know. Like maybe you want the fingers to snap off of your puppets, in which case don't put wire in. But this is, this is the tool. This is the effect it has. These are the times that you can use it. And there are cases where you, it won't apply. This is the thing. I mean, this kind of goes back to the mentorship conversation we were having last episode a little bit. But I think that's a tough balancing act for me is trusting the person to be smart and figure out their own solution, but also wanting to be like, oh, that's not going to work and here's why. But maybe it will work for them, right? And, you know, for me, it's such a balancing act of like not trying to dominate how someone else is going to solve a problem, but also wanting to make sure that I am telling them that like, yeah, you can't build fingers that way. They're going to break, right? So knowing what the line between what is actionable advice versus what is sharing experience the, yeah, there's, is a trick. There's what kind of cooking oil goes best with uh, frying meats 
and no, wait, don't put a frozen turkey in the deep fryer. You will <laughs> explode the deep fryer and burn down the house. There are very, very few artistic situations that are frozen turkey in the deep fryer advice for me. Not, not many cases where I'll say, oh, no, never do that. Absolutely not ever. Um, and when I but when I see one, I will step I will step up and say, maybe you shouldn't do that. It's going to blow up. I still think a lot of it is about showing your work when you give advice, mm-hmm. not just like giving the advice and then running out and then being like, don't do it. Bye. But explaining like, here's the situation you may be having for yourself. So you're like, if you decide to do this this way, here is some pushback that you might be getting. Here's the way readers might react to it. Here's what you may then need to work with, like on the other side. So it's sort of like if you were like, oh, uh, I definitely don't want to put wire in those fingers. You're like, okay, well, gravity is going to work this way. So if you definitely don't want to have those wires, you may need to use a lighter substance because ultimately you can't do anything about gravity, but you can work around it. You know, and so I think figuring, <laughs> apparently. So, I mean, Would magic. you like to see this video of someone putting <laughs> a frozen turkey in a deep fryer? Yeah. Because, yeah, sometimes you do need to offer evidence. Yeah, and then sometimes you just need to say, like, here's a lot of the writing advice that I think is out in the world is a shorthand for a longer conversation that isn't happening. And so people d- distill it down to, like, show, don't tell, but they don't explain why and what they mean and why should you show here and tell there? And that's mm-hmm. the conversation that doesn't happen. And that's the advice we need to give more of. I love this thing about like, you can't change gravity, right? Because a lot of times when I'm seeing writers talk about certain things, when I'm talking to them, I'll, I'll at some point kind of shrug and be like, yeah, that's capitalism, right? And I think in some ways, the publishing industry, the logic, and this goes back to me talking about understanding what publishing is for, is understanding that is, that's the rule of gravity. The, the, that at the end of the day, a publisher is going to want to maximize profit. You can't change that. So what do you? What can you change? What piece of advice you have to build around the fact that gravity is going to pull you in a certain direction, and therefore you need to do X, Y, or Z? Um, I want to get a little bit more into sort of details of ways in which advice can be a little bit of a trap or involves us contradicting ourselves. You're going to hear us disagree with things that we said three episodes ago all the time. Um, and I think there's some stuff to be unpacked there, but let's take a quick break first. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. So the thing of the week this week is uh, one of my favorite newsletters, uh, Stone Soup by Sarah Gailey. Uh, The thing that Sarah does is try and build a lot of community through the work that they do online. Um, And the Stone Soup uh, uh, newsletter this year is doing a thing called the Personal Canons Cookbook. Um, I'm contributing an essay to it. It's a really delightful thing. Uh, the Personal Canons Cookbook idea is a series of essays um, that highlight the way food shapes us and uh, our relationship to ourselves and to our communities. 
Um, it's featuring a wide range of voices of people who will talk about what certain dishes mean to them in their personal history and personal sort of cultural associations, and then include a recipe of how you can make that yourself. Uh, their goal is to have this as an ongoing online series um, and then to publish a cookbook collection of it at the end if there are enough subscribers for it. So uh, again, that's Stone Soup by Sarah Gailey. Uh, I would go check that out. So as I was talking about before the break, the thing that I really want to get into is the way in which I think one of the reasons that I don't like to give advice is because all publishing advice tends to be inherently contradictory. I think sometimes success in publishing is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your head at the same time and execute on both of them at the same time, right? The example I always give is show, don't tell, right? So we hear this advice all the time. Show, don't tell, show, don't tell, show, don't tell. Don't, don't tell us that someone's feeling an emotion. Show, show us how that person's body is responding, how they're talking, how they're breathing. The flip side of that is that a book is mostly an author telling us stuff, right? A book is 90% tell, right? And when I find myself like glacially moving through an opening scene, it's often because they're showing me every single thing. When really I want them to do is like, just tell me what time of day it is. Tell me what this person's doing. Tell me who they are. Why do we care about them? And so finding that balancing line is you have to do both at the same time. Show, don't tell is accurate. You need to be showing, but also you have to tell. You can't just do one. You got to do both. Yeah, sorry. That is one of my uh, my biggest pet peeves as, as writing advice. I have a whole TikTok. You can go watch me rant about it. Um, but, but the thing is with that, that for me, it, it's the, the show don't tell comes back to the, the, the question, like, what are you trying to accomplish? And that I feel like the, the writing advice that when we give it to people, that we, the, when I, what I try is to give them the right questions to ask rather than giving them the answers. And so unpacking show, don't tell, it's like, this is the effect of showing, which is that it will slow the pacing down. It will give you, um, it will often root you more in a character's emotions. It can, it can have these effects. This is the effect of telling. It can speed the pacing up. It can gloss over things. It can distance you from the emotion because you're not giving the, the reader time. Both of these are possible outcomes from showing versus telling. What do you want to happen in the scene? Is this a place where you need things to pick up? Is this a place where you don't? So like I'm writing a scene right now where uh, my main character is uh, has just gone through some trauma and is disassociating. And I am telling every, like I am flipping everything for show, don't tell. You know, she watched her body leave the room you know, because I need that distance. So I'm, I'm using that tool in the inverse. Whereas if I had just taken the, you should always do this, mm -hmm. you know, this is a flaw. I would not do that scene. So it's for me, giving advice is, is about giving them the tools and the questions to ask. One of my favorite places to, to criticize the, the whole giving of advice is in a critique group scenario. Mm -hmm. where uh, it's almost always inappropriate to give advice to the author whose manuscript you are reading about what needs to be changed. And the reason for this tends to be that uh, what the author needs is to know how you reacted to what they put on the page, not what advice you would give, how you reacted to what they put on the page 
um, so that they can evaluate whether their intent for your reaction was correctly executed. Now, that's a pretty complicated recipe. So sometimes in a critique group, I will ask, what did you want me to feel after this scene? Because I'm not sure how to tell you what I felt in a way that's meaningful. And and I would only have that discussion with someone whom I have been in this group with for a while, where we already have a relationship, we already have a syntax. And that's the point at which we've grown to where I might actually be able to give advice because I know a thing that I didn't know before. Um, it's always tempting to look at a thing that you feel like's been done wrong because you didn't respond to it the way you feel like you should have and give advice. And that's a that's an easy early career writer trap to just step all the way out of and mm-hmm. say, oh, oh, I, I don't have to give it any advice at all during a critique group. Well, I mean, I think this goes back to tools, not rules, right? Like, mm-hmm. here are principles that can be useful. But the thing is, no one can tell you how to do the thing exactly. You got you to gotta navigate that yourself. Take these different learnings and apply it. And remember, just because somebody said so, because an agent said so, editor said so, famous writer said so, some guys on a podcast said so, doesn't mean that, like, you have to do that thing. Uh, I had the opportunity just this week to help my daughter write a... Uh a protest speech. She was involved with a protest at her university. Uh, she had the opportunity to give a four-minute speech, and she wrote a 10-minute speech and sent it to me and said, this is way too long, help me. Uh, and so my main job was to cut that down, uh, you know, well over half of it. Uh, but another part of my job was to make sure that the parts that were important to her were still there. Uh, this had to still sound like her, and it had to still be um, emotionally resonant in order to really matter, in order to serve her and to serve the audience. And so I remember one story in particular that she told, um, I cut that out. And I said, this story is boring. She's like, that's my favorite story in the speech. And then that gave us the opportunity to talk about, well, it doesn't fit from my perspective. It is long. You need to make up this time somehow. But how can we change it in order to make it fit? If that's what's important to you, then rather than just cutting it out, which was my gut instinct, how can we tweak this? How can we build toward it? How can we draw a better line under it so that the thing you want to bring out comes out? I Going back to the kitchen metaphor, the professional kitchen metaphor from a couple of episodes ago, I often think about the, the, the tools as recipes, and that, that when I'm giving advice, I'm like, this is a recipe. But the danger is that it's very easy, especially when we're giving like structure advice. It's very easy to give someone a recipe so that they just keep, their restaurant serves nothing but cake. And, you know, it's like maybe they want to make a really nice soup. Maybe they want to make like lasagna. And, you know, there's a bunch of different things. And then you get into the world of molecular gastronomy where people are doing things with techniques that should not normally be applied to an ingredient and coming with magical, amazing effects. And so if you know the science behind the recipe, then you can apply that to your own thing. And for again, for me, I'm just going to keep coming back to this and the thing you were talking about with your daughter, it's knowing what is important to them and helping them get to the story that they're trying to tell. And I think that's actually perfect because I was just thinking that 
you know, how do you expand also the types of advice that you get? Because the recipes that we know come from the kitchens we were raised in. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's so a lot of times, like because the of the way that the publishing industry is and life is, you might see the same recipes over and over again, the same types of advice. It's like thinking about that path through the woods. We may all get really good at walking one path through the woods and have great advice for it and not realize, number one, that there are people coming from another path mm-hmm. who might need different advice, but also what those people see on their path might, even though it doesn't seem like it it has to do with an obstacle we face on our path, be an amazing tool that we could be using. And so I love getting advice from folks who are coming from a completely different storytelling tradition mm-hmm. than one that I'm used to, who are just coming from a different country, just people who are telling stories differently because mm-hmm. then they have different advice and different tools and different recipes that are going to make my offerings so much better. This is where I read a book a couple years ago called Craft in the Real World. Yeah. I believe his name is Matthew Salasis. I don't know how yes. to pronounce his last name. You're correct. Um, wonderful, wonderful book that completely transformed my teaching practice because so much of it is talking about, hey, we teach in a certain way that's very top-down. Here's how the Western sort of culture wants things to be versus accepting people are coming from different places. And so I think, you know, going back to, to tools, not rules, is understanding that these writing rules, quote unquote, are in place. And it's good to know what they are. I think it's very important to know these structures, why people do certain things. And the best reason to know it is so that you can break them, right? My favorite type of fiction is when somebody takes a thing that you know they're not supposed to do, and then they just charge headlong into it and be like, no, forget that. I'm going to do the thing that you told me not to do. I'm going to do it in a way that's exciting and interesting and organic. That sometimes produces the most exciting type of fiction, for me at least. Yeah. At the same time, I will also say that there is benefit when you are starting out yeah. to, um, to trying on a rule set for size uh, and doing things on the easy setting and just tweaking one parameter because one of the things that I will see people do sometimes is like, I'm I'm just going to try to I'm going to try to subvert everything mm-hmm. without actually understanding how things connect to each other and the ramifications, and and I think that you should like I also think that you should experiment, but I don't think that you should expect all of your ex- experiments to be successful and and interesting. Yeah, like, once have, in a I've generation made, maybe you'll find somebody who can break all the rules. And create a new paradigm. Some, uh, uh, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, Lord knows I've made some cocktails that are hot messes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, sometimes we talk about being experimental and how exciting being experimental is. Sometimes experimenting is experimenting with the rule set, is playing within the boundaries. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, be on vacation in Paris recently, and I went to the Rodin Museum, which is one of my favorite museums in the world. I love a single artist museum because you get to see so much yeah. of the arc of their career. And the thing that always strikes me whenever I go to these, like Picasso, Dali, Rodin, whatever, their earliest work is so traditional. They mm-hmm, started mm-hmm. from a place of being so good at the normal, formal thing. And then you can see the little seed of where they're going and then watching them bit by bit figure out which rules they can break until you get to these incredible masterpieces that transformed aesthetics, art, all these things, and culture. 
But they started from somewhere, and that somewhere usually was a much more traditional practice. But then you've so, got outsider artists as well who have yeah. never followed any rule mm-hmm. set at all that are doing things, except for the ones that they are discovering and chasing their own joy, who are doing fabulous, interesting work that is very hard to get exactly. a home for. And, and like a good experiment is not the same thing as publishable. Well, this is, this is, we're, we're demonstrating the thing that we're talking about. We're demonstrating the traps of talking about advice because there's so many different ways to do it, right? There's so many different paths to success. Sometimes what we're doing is optimizing for what's most likely, what will be applicable to the broadest part of the audience. But as, you know, we were talking about with Craft uh, in the Real World and someone Aaron saying, it's something that can mean that we're deliberately disregarding a section of the audience over and over again. So how do you find that balance? How do you, how do you, you know, manage that. And I think the answer is you bring in as many voices as you can, which is something that we all try to do here. Um, And to read really broadly, I try to ingest as many stories from different places, different media, different cultures, different genres. And that I think helps me do the thing that I focus on. John Kavalik and I went back and forth briefly on Twitter talking about what a delightful luxury it is uh, at this point in our careers to have people look at our artwork and praise all of our flaws and shortcomings and shortcuts as, I really just love your style. Yeah, mm. yeah that's cute. <laughs> I'm so happy you feel that way about it. Um, there are so many things that I wish I could do better, that I continue to try to do better, and I have lucked into being in a position where I can get away with, in large measure, not doing a lot of that stuff. Um, it would be a mistake, I think, for a young artist to look at my artwork, for a young writer to look at my writing and say, well, this style works for so-and-so, I will just emulate. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, please. That's not mm-hmm. what I would do if I were where you are. So I think that the only mis- actual mistake you can make in, in writing, and this is broadly stated and with great authority, <laughs> the only mistake that you can actually make in writing is if the work does not have the effect you want it to have on the audience that you intended it for. Mm -hmm. That's the only time you've made a mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to talk a lot about how certain commercial writers will sort of get talked down to, but I actually think they're some of the best writers in the business on a craft level. You know, I I use Lee Child as an example all the time in my uh, uh, writing classes because I think he is so precise about the thing that he's trying to do. It may not be as aesthetically beautiful as Cormac McCarthy for a certain set of taste, but boy, is it effective. And you can learn a lot from watching how someone like that accomplishes what he's trying to accomplish at the same level, I think, that what Cormac McCarthy is trying to accomplish for what he's trying to accomplish, right? And I think having, you know, I think in terms of criticism, sometimes intent isn't always the most important thing, but in terms of craft, watching someone achieve the thing they set out to do, I think is a beautiful thing and one that we should all be paying attention to. Um, I keep going back to uh, what Aaron said about uh, getting food and recipes from different traditions Mm. than your own. And what immediately jumped to mind was, it feels like maybe two or three years ago, American chefs discovered gochujang. (laughs) And it was like this huge, have you guys tried this? Uh, which has been in Korean cooking forever. And now all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, you add this. And that idea of I now have access to this ingredient I've never had before 
Um, and I can learn so much from the people who, you know, developed it and who use it every day. And what can that do? How can I change that? Uh, how, how can I change my own food? That's, that's such a fascinating topic for me. One thing I do want to flag, though, is that if I have to go to one more Brooklyn brunch spot that has the <laughs> saddest kimchi I've ever seen in my life, mm-hmm. I will literally explode. And this is part of it, is you have to pay attention to the rules, right? Yeah. I, I saw a cooking video on YouTube a few years ago that was a white chef who was teaching people how to make kimchi. And at the end, he held up this brown, goopy mess. And I was looking at it being like, the hell did you make, man? That ain't kimchi. <laughs> like, that's that's not right. It's the wrong color. It's the wrong materials. It's the wrong technique because he didn't take the time to sit down and learn how did the people who have been mm-hmm. making this for thousands of years make it. Yes. Right? And you have to really internalize those techniques, and then you can innovate. And I also think, like, you need to make sure not to leave the people behind that you're that you're yeah. taking those recipes yeah. from. Yeah. You don't want to end up with what I call the oxtail debacle, which is where, I don't know, some people d- discovered oxtail and started buying it to the point where, like, you know, oxtail is a delicious— no, it's horrible. There was a whole part on Twitter where actually people were trashing oxtail purposefully to try to drive prices back down. Hey, why is because, it thirteen dollars a pound? Because they're like <laughs> it was like a dollar a pound. Yeah, when they I was were a like kid. part of the reason that we you know we worked with it, and we loved it, was because it was cheap. And now like people, other people are driving up the prices, and the folks who you learned your oxtail recipe from can't afford the meat that you are now using yeah. in your high-end restaurant. And so it's like that can happen. It happens to so many things, yeah. and it can happen with writing traditions. It is amazing to learn from other people. It is horrible to learn from other people and then not give them the opportunity to also express that part of the craft by shutting the door behind you. Exactly. Yeah. And I think this is where, when I get didactic about advice, it's when stuff like this is being is happening. When I see people being harmed by the practices being put into place. So the only time I feel more comfortable really saying, do this, don't do that, is when I see, you know, acts of appropriation happening, when I see, you know, reifying certain colonial practice in terms of how people write about certain things, um, or just over racism on the page sometimes, those are the moments where I find that I have to stand up and really flex a little bit from my position and be like, hey, this is a problem in these ways, right? So, As with everything we've said here, it's all a balancing act, right? It's all these contradictions. Never get advice unless somebody's really messing up, in which case give that advice, right? Um, You know, take from other cultures and learn new practices, but don't do it in a way that harms other people or removes opportunities for other people, right? It's all these balancing acts. And, you know, that's why doing a show like this is so much fun for me and is so dynamic, but it's a thing that I am very live to in all the conversations we have about how do we balance those things? How do we make sure we are supporting the people we want to support? We're giving tools. We're not giving rules. We're doing all these things and making space for people to figure out, here's my intent. Here's what I want to do. And here's how I'm going to do it. So on that note, Dan, I believe you have our homework. All right, your homework today, there's two parts of the homework. The first one is this. Uh, We want you to write a letter to yourself a year ago uh, describing to that person what kind of skills are they going to need in order to confront the challenges that are coming in the coming year. Um, What kinds of advice would you give to yourself if you could do that for for yourself one year ago? So write that letter. Uh, The other thing 
is we have now finished this wonderful eight-episode series, Deep Dive into Dong Wan's newsletter and all of the wonderful topics that spun off from that. Uh, we're starting a new one next week. We will be doing a deep dive into my audiobook, Dark One Forgotten. We mentioned this a couple of months ago. We're reminding you now, uh, find that somewhere and listen to it. It's only six hours long. And uh, starting next week, we will be digging deep into that project. In the next episode of Writing Excuses, we learn what it was like for Dan to hear the unbleeped version of his audiobook and why he knows so much about cults. Until then, you're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 